This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. In a nutshell, self-determination theory is a, is a theory of human motivation that postulates that to the degree that people's what's called autonomous motivation is engaged, they wind up being both happier and more productive. And it turns out that the happiness and product, productivity go hand in hand with each other. And productivity doesn't just mean more throughput. It doesn't necessarily just mean seeing more patients or generating more grant dollars. It also means more creative thinking and you know better problem solving uh, in the in the broadest sense. So these are outcomes that we all want for ourselves and for our faculty colleagues. I've actually found it helpful, this this framework, uh, in my role in academic affairs and in helping develop leadership skills in colleagues, whatever their titles or lack of titles might be. But, you know, all faculty uh, serve as leaders in all sorts of ways with our colleagues in some ways. And I think that thinking about ways to promote uh, autonomous intrinsic motivation has, is really a way to help engage people and ultimately help them be more successful at what they want to do. Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Jeffrey Linus, Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at the University of Rochester Medical Center. People are just enjoying these conversations, and I think we're really building some nice momentum and some community, especially on the heels of our wonderful professional development conference that you, as the fearless leader of the AAMC Group on Faculty Affairs, led us to. So thank you for your leadership this past year. And I'd love to um, hear about how you got into to academic affairs. People are always curious, since none of us go to school for this, how does a professor of psychiatry and neurology end up in academic affairs? Well, uh, first, thank you for all the, the kind words. Um, I also had a wonderful time and, and really learned a lot at the conference uh, for the GFA in July in Chicago. Yeah, the, you know, routes to uh, to these jobs are probably pretty varied and individualized. And I think most of us, certainly most of us who come to a job like this from the faculty side of things, didn't originally imagine this sort of thing. I mean, you know, when I grow up one day or, you know, if I succeed in my career, I'm going to wind up becoming a dean for faculty affairs, which I'm not sure I knew what that was. In fact, I'm pretty sure I didn't know what that was for a good many years into my career. So I, I think it was kind of a combination of things. Some of it had to do with having been lucky enough to have career experiences that span the different missions of the institution. So at different points in my career, I've had spent different amounts of time, but a fair amount of time uh, at one time or another uh, seeing patients and uh, doing research. Uh, my area of interest in research had been late-life depression uh, and also being involved with education uh, and administration related to each of those missions. So part of it had to do with being familiar you know, over the years with different things that, that most of our faculty get to do. And part of it had to do with right place, right time, and getting to know the right people at the right time. So through those roles I've just alluded to, I wound up working pretty closely with a couple of people in the dean's office. One of them was our senior associate dean for medical student education, who I worked very closely with for many years and then reported to uh, in a role that was called director of curriculum for the four years of the medical school program. So we got to know each other quite well, and I got to have some experience working with him. And at the same time, I also got to know 
the former uh, person in my role now in the dean's office, our former senior associate dean for academic affairs, who was himself somebody who, had, uh, an orthopedist, a hand surgeon who had been chair of orthopedics and actually acting chair of a couple of other departments before serving in the dean's role for about 10 years. And I worked with him by serving on the school-wide promotions committee that he chaired at the time. Mm-hmm. And then he wound up appointing me to a newly created role as medical director for continuing medical education for CME. And so I was in that role for several years and working pretty closely with him uh, on that. And so when he started to think of his name's Dick Burton, I should keep referring to him anonymously as a Richard Burton, a Richard I. Burton. When Dick was starting to think that uh, that uh, ten years was a good run and he was sort of ready to step down, he began to think about succession planning. And uh, he suggested to our dean, uh, Mark Taubin, who is still our dean as well as CEO of the medical center, that um, you know we, we should do an internal search, but that he was thinking I would be a, a candidate for that position. So uh, sort of you know right people, right place, right time kind of thing. That's right. That sounds just about. It's a sounds like a familiar story that, in the way you said it, that none of us really, or few of us, I imagine, seek out these positions. Rather, it's doing the things we love. Uh, that we're good at, and then the good mentorship is identifying us and urging us to take on new challenges and stretch projects that maybe sometimes reveal to us our gifts that we didn't even know we had. So that's a nice, great story reminding the young folks coming up the line to um, take advantage of these opportunities and mentorship and, and keeping your eyes open to things that sometimes maybe wasn't even in your you know, in in your frame of a view, something you didn't think about, but uh, it's another opportunity to serve and to um, you know help faculty in new ways. I, th- I think that that's right. It it, it 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 partly involves being open to new opportunities that we hadn't thought about before, and uh, not rejecting them in our own minds out of hand, but sort of thinking about what would be the pros and cons of this, and what might I be able to learn from this, and what could I bring to this. I think I also want to echo what you said about mentorship. So, uh, you know, I've had a lot of really important mentors throughout my career and continue to meet with a number of them, including Dick Burton, uh, my, my predecessor. So here we are seven years later, and I still meet with him regularly, maybe not quite as often as I did when I first started, but I still meet with him pretty regularly and his guidance and mentorship and kind of wisdom from having done this job before, as well as done a lot of other leadership things and frontline faculty things for a long time has been invaluable to helping me uh, try to do what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you're you're making me think of my mentor. And I think when we talk in our leadership programs with younger faculty and tell them that we, the instructors and the more senior folks in the room, have mentors, you come to, sometimes I feel like I see an eyebrow raised, like, really? You haven't figured it out yet? <laughs> but I, it's you're, you're exactly right that I still find that when I meet with my mentor, Cindy Rand, Cynthia Rand is a psychologist at Hopkins and just amazing, just literally a genius. I meet with her and it is so humbling. And I think, well, I got this figured out. I'm going to zip through this little update pretty quickly. And she'll just ask me a question. I'm like, ah, man, she got me. That's right. That's so smart. And she, she can kind of see some of my blind spots or just blind spots, period. And uh, just twist things just a little bit to kind of give you a different perspective on things. So I'm forever humbled and amazed when I meet with uh, Dr. Rand, that um, she just always makes things better for me. And so 
that to me is a lesson of, yeah, we all need mentorship no matter where we are because we just kind of get in the groove. And those blind spots are called blind spots for a reason that even if we think, well, I'm aware of some of these things that I do and don't do, nah, it's nothing like a good set of eyes to help reflect you back to yourself and um, improve. So that's a great lesson, Jeff. Thanks. So, yeah, I think that, that there's always wonderful things to talk about with our mentors, no matter what phase of career we're in. And, uh, you know, I think that most of us, we want to continue to kind of grow and adapt and learn new things. And, and, and uh, how do we do that uh, completely on our own? I think we can get kind of stuck in kind of mental ruts about the way we think about things unless we keep bringing in more perspectives. So. You're exactly right. Yeah, diversity is all we need is just more diversity of opinions and yeah, we could probably spend the whole hour talking about mentorship, and I'm sure we both have tons of examples of reflecting back on all the the value of um, seeking, you know, proactively seeking that that advice and that wisdom. Yes. Well, so every everybody likes to know the um, organizational structure, the org chart, just kind of the lay of the land of our offices, because we, although we know um, we're all unique in our in our populations in our schools it's kind of always interesting to hear about what kinds of positions exist where and i and i know you are lucky to have the uh, wonderful dr janine shapiro at the university of rochester janine is on the group on faculty affairs gfa subcommittee the research and project development subcommittee so she has been a wonderful contributing active member of our subcommittee as some of you listening to the podcast may remember from for example the workshop that we put on led by Troy, Dr. Troy Buer. So Janine was there and she great workshop. Been, yes. Yeah. That was so fun. You were there. Yeah. That was a huge turnout. Yeah. So what is your um, space in academic affairs at university of Rochester look like? Well, uh, you're certainly right about Janine being a wonderful colleague and friend, and you and we are we're all lucky to to have her as uh, as that. Uh, so the way that we're set up here, Janine is uh, Janine Shapiro is our associate dean for faculty development, and so she runs an office for faculty development at our school, which is a more or less autonomous office within the dean's office, and she has her own budget, uh, but uh, but she does uh, meet with me regularly, so I can kind of help support her and her and guide her in her role. So I guess you know nominally. You know, you could say that she reports to me in that role. Uh, in, we call our office the Office for Academic Affairs here at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, and uh, the purview is mostly faculty affairs as well as uh, supporting department chairs in their role and their development, uh, recruiting, uh, helping our dean recruit new department chairs has become part of the role. Um, and uh, so the office, when I came into it, had uh, three staff colleagues, uh, administrative director and a couple of other staff colleagues, and the office has expanded by an additional couple of people as the size of our faculty has grown in the last seven years since I've been in the office and the scope of what we do here has expanded, including uh, new faculty professionals and counsel and new programs and kind of welcoming and orienting new faculty members and and other things. Um, I also work with other colleagues in a different office in the dean's office and executive uh, recruitment office around the chair searches. So in the end, I wound up working with a number of staff colleagues really closely. Um, 
I guess the other thing I would say is that in my role, I wind up reporting directly to the dean. So we right now, we our, our dean, Mark Talvin, is both dean of the School of Medicine and Dentistry and CEO of the Medical Center. Those roles existed, but were two different people for most of our recent history, uh, including when I first took the job, my job. Uh, but uh, Mark wound up assuming both of those roles now uh, a number of years back. Um, so I report directly to him in his dean of the medical school role. We have vice deans as well, uh, and so uh, I don't technically report to them, but obviously in practice I do quasi-report, sort of dotted line report to them and work quite closely with the vice deans. And then I want to collaborating with a number of other senior associate deans and other institutional leaders around the school and around the medical center, depending on, on what it is. I've worked pretty closely with our chief medical officer for the hospital and, and health system, uh, as well as our education deans and our research deans and other colleagues like that. So I think every place has its own variations in these themes, but I'm also imagining that these themes are probably pretty common across most places. Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, how many faculty do you have at the University of Rochester Medical Center and School of Dentistry and Medicine? And then you, you mentioned um, an executive recruitment office. I was curious if you could talk more about if that's an internal or if that's an external recruitment office about this, your dean searches, your chair searches. Sure. Um, so we, in terms of faculty members, we now have over 1,800 uh, uh, employed faculty members. So that when I say employed, that means full-time and uh, also employed part-time, which we treat as equivalent to our full-time faculty members. So over 1,800, which is an increase of about 400 from where we were seven years ago. Um, and then we have approximately 1,000 voluntary clinical faculty members as well, um, and, and a smaller number, but significant numbers of adjunct appointments and other kinds of appointments where people are not employed but have some kind of relationship with their school warranting a faculty appointment. Got it. And this this executive recruitment office, is this an internal thing? Like I'm thinking of what, um, you know, other folks on the podcast have uh, internal search firms uh, in Indiana, Mary Dankosky, they, they created their like own executive search department yes. internally. Is, is that the similar thing you have there in Rochester? Not yet, but I am familiar with uh, what uh, Mary and her colleagues have built at Indiana. We've tried to learn from them. So at this point, we don't have what I would call an internal search firm uh, in terms of the kind of sourcing of candidates in a very systematic way with uh, you know uh, people who are dedicated to that. At present, our recruitment office provides sort of logistic support to searches. So uh, for you know for uh, dean's office and chair and other uh, you know uh, medical centers or executive level searches, uh, you know, the CFO of the medical center or the chief technology officer or, or positions like that. Chief nursing executive is another big search we did within the last couple of years. Um, and so what they do is provide logistical support to the committee and then uh, helping uh, assemble candidate itineraries and escorting the candidates around and trying to give them as much as we can of a sort of red carpet experience from when they arrive in town, if they're external, uh, and, and certainly when they arrive for their interviews and throughout their visit and helping them, uh, if, if, uh, if they're moving here from another place, helping them connect with the right people to look at, at housing opportunities and job opportunities for their spouse or partner or other things that maybe their family might need or, or whatever. So they provide all that kind of logistical support. Yeah. We 
if we sometimes we source our own candidates, but that's done primarily by me or whoever's chair in the search committee. Often, uh, particularly for our, uh, department chair searches, we often do use external search firms. At this point, we have begun to explore creating something along the lines of what they've done in Indiana uh, in terms of. Uh, essentially having an internal search firm that does the sourcing as well, but we're, we're not at that point just, just yet. Wow. So last uh, week on the podcast, we talked to Kevin Grigsby, and we had a really interesting conversation about what he terms the moral injury and his concern about the future of academic medicine and how we, uh, how we work with and how we treat faculty members. And and when I asked him at the end of that interview, you know, what can we do? You know, how can we um, fix this problem and help um, help save our faculty? And he said that the number one thing you can do is hire good department chairs, you know, department chairs who understand uh, the value of faculty and the fact that you could get rid of all the administrators in an academic medical center, and you'd still be able to do the mission of the work of the you know tre- uh, treating patients and doing research and teaching. But if you got rid of all the faculty members, you wouldn't be able to do anything. So tell us about uh, the your department chair searches, and can you walk us through an experience or a recent hire and the the philosophy and and how you're tackling this in Rochester? Sure, I, and I certainly agree with what you and, and Kevin have said about the importance of uh, of leaders. I mean, leaders make an enormous difference, and we've we've all seen examples of uh, dramatic differences in um, in morale and well being of faculty and staff and trainees uh, in a department uh, with a change in leadership. Um, we've seen examples where departments have had a hard time uh, recruiting uh, new faculty to join them, and then a, new, a change of leadership and a new chair comes in and. And, uh, uh, you know, is able to recruit quite successfully and really kind of build programs and build a department. And, you know, so leadership matters enormously. And I think uh, that that a key part of this, and, and I, I, although I've chaired a number of our department chair searches in the past seven, uh, eight years now, um, ultimately, obviously, the credit needs to go to our dean and to the other senior leaders of the medical center who ultimately make the hiring decision and uh, and actually make the offer to candidates. That's not something I do as chair of the search committees here. Um, but uh, they've, they've really valued above all else. I mean, usually the, one of the first questions a department will ask the dean when we're launching a search is, what are you looking for most? And he will answer, I certainly think rightly, that the most important thing are leadership skills, uh, which are obviously there are many, but in the end, it's the ability to lead groups of people uh, and help them develop their own individual careers in the context of some kind of collective set of goals where the whole department is moving in certain directions. And so, you know, the, as has often been said, the kinds of things on a CV that get one to be considered to be a department chair are, are good, but in and of themselves, they're not predictors by themselves of how good a chair someone's going to be. So that along those lines, uh, how do we train department chairs? So I mean, I'm, I'm sure you before you're seeking and hiring new uh, department chairs, we have those who are sitting around for a while. Uh, do you have any experience of training existing chairs or even even newbies? I guess you know how do how do you um, work with the ones who are currently sitting there to help them understand or equip them with leadership skills and 
equip them with communication skills and and having a heightened sensitivity or awareness uh, to the issues that the faculty face? How do you do that? Well, we do offer a number of leadership development things for our dep- uh, department chairs uh, at the time they come in. So one of the things we've added to our portfolio in the last uh, bunch of years has been an onboarding program for new chairs. We wind up assigning them, uh, you know, with with their input, obviously, in choosing this, we wind up assigning them a chair mentor. So somebody who's an, ex- we were talking about mentorship earlier, you and I, so the chairs need mentorship too, uh, just like the rest of us. And so we wind up having, pairing them up with either a current experience chair or somebody who'd been a chair previously so that they have a person they can talk with in private about the things that they're dealing with and what they need help with and different perspective on and so on. We have a leadership seminar for our chairs that's open to all of our chairs and more or less required for our newer chairs with a series of topics over a two-year curriculum. And it's very much informal, vignette-based, as in we ask a couple of chairs each month to come in and present something that they're dealing with right sort of in the moment that relates to the topic of that month. And um, so, so there's a number of things we do to try to help uh, develop the skills of the chairs. We also try to enlist them in seeking out national programs in, in chair and leadership development, whether it be through the AAMC program or uh, uh, there's a number of other courses at the national level that lots of us are familiar with um, to varying degrees that, that are really helpful to them. I, I will say, too, that anybody who comes to a department chair position, particularly in larger departments than in clinical departments, but I think this is also true in the basic science departments, the time to first test your leadership skills should not be when you become a chair, right? <laughs> People should be able to, you know, how do we know if someone's going to be, what kind of a leader someone's going to be? It's got to be in part what they say and how they talk about the concepts, but we also want to see whether they're able to walk the walk in practice, which means what have they led before they take a chair job and how did they do? Uh, and obviously these are multifaceted skill sets and people might have relative strengths, but we want to have some sense of how they did with these things. And so uh, we just launched a search for our uh, uh, chair of the Department of Medicine. And like most places, our Department of Medicine is our largest department in terms of faculty and staff and so on. So in a Department of Medicine search, most candidates, and I can say this without actually, we're not quite at the stage where we've finalized our slate of candidates yet, but most people will have been a division chief or an associate chair or some other major leadership role within a department of medicine before being a candidate for the chair position. Whereas in some fields, the departments may be small enough that they don't have those kinds of infrastructure positions like an associate chair or a division chief, but this still should be something that they've some group of people that they've led to some kinds of successful outcomes and give us a sense of how they work with people and support their development and role model professionalism and and all the kinds of things we want our chairs to do. Yeah. Well, you're reminding me of uh, Dan Shapiro at Penn State and his presentation at the PDC in Chicago recently. They have a good model at Penn State where they do behavioral interviewing. He actually has vignettes that he poses to chair candidates. And it's really fascinating because, you know, the, the premise is that on an interview, everybody says the right thing and, and gives the right answers. And what's most important is that you actually see, see the behavior. So he presents two weeks before the interview a, a vignette of a, a faculty member who was disgruntled, nothing off the charts, you know, horrible, but nothing too low level, but just kind of a typical uh, faculty um, issue where they're maybe not generating the RVUs that they're, they're not meeting target. Maybe they're missing some clinic sessions. 
and they're a little bit disappointed because they're not having time for their academic research. And so the, the faculty member has requested a meeting with that person. And so the candidate is given that, that story. And then right there during a panel interview, they say, okay, it's, we're going to do the, we're going to do the, um, the role play now. And they mm-hmm. actually have one of the panelists will be the faculty member walks in and says, you know, Hey, doctor, you know, Dr. Linus, thanks for meeting with me today. I want, I just want to talk with you about what's happening in the clinic and in my research. And then they, you, they play it out. And so then what's interesting is that I guess after that, you know, after like it's a little 10 minute, it doesn't, doesn't go longer than 10 minutes. They ask the candidate to debrief, you know, what do you think you did well during that? What do you think you didn't do well? So it's just a good opportunity, I guess, to see somebody in real time. And, you know, as you mentioned, this testing your skills clearly, and that could be, I mean, I mean, we could talk about how that goes, but Dan's got a good, a good model for that. But, uh, I mean, I guess I'm thinking because some people would say, well, you could rehearse that as well. And of course they will, they've been given the script, so they, they know what happens, but what they don't know is some of what the candidate, the faculty member is going to say. So it's real time, real conversation. And there are some guidelines given to the, the role modeling faculty member not to go, you know, ballistic. So, and he, and Dan, has, you know, shares an example of how the, the candidate said, you know, I, I liked how I did this, but then I felt myself when she said that, I felt myself trying to solve the problem and, and I don't like how I did that and what I would typically do would or, and Dan said, even if they mess something up, what the panelist wants to see is the thought process. They want to see that kind of yeah. reflection. So I imagine that's what you're talking about that, you know, you want to get hire somebody who has that experience, who's been there, who has the ability to self-reflect, as you put it. I, that's part of what I like about that model is that it not only shows people's interpersonal skills on the fly, you know, in, in real time, but also gets at this ability to reflect and self-critique and, and so on, which, of course, are really important qualities for a, a, I mean, any of us, I would say, to succeed in our careers, but especially for people to succeed in leadership roles like a department chair role. I will say that having been through uh, seven, uh, this is now the 17th search that I'm either chairing or co-chairing in the past seven, eight years, and oh. it's really interesting to see how, uh, how, what kinds of things come out, even in contexts where you might expect you wouldn't expect us to learn about that in that context. Uh, you know, I remember uh, some years back we had a chair candidate who was doing a grand round style topic presentation on a topic of his choice. Um, uh, and and we actually learned things that you might not have expected to learn in that setting because this person wound up referring to grant reviewers or reviewers of papers that, that he'd submitted on those data that he was presenting in kind of disparaging language. You know that these the reviewers didn't get it, and the reviewers didn't understand it, and you know the, they the, and, it, and it was just it may have been correct perceptions. But it felt to everybody in the room and certainly to us on the committee, like if this person is putting down these folks in this kind of setting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how do, how do they do with, with people when they're actually working with them day to day? And right. so um, that, that told us quite a lot in ways that one might not have expected from a grand round. Yeah, you're exactly right. So what do you do? Do you um, engage in 360s after people, your leaders have been there a couple years? Is that because, I'm, of course, I'm wondering... We do the, you do a great onboarding and they have mentorship with other, other chairs or former chairs and they mm-hmm. have that two year leadership seminar. 
and that you encourage them to go to national programs. And, and at what point um, can you rely on some kind of a formal 360 to have them look at opportunities where I'm really good at this, but I'm not so much good at that? Because right. Like so said, what we do up, up front, it takes a while to be able to build a, a a valid data set for a 360. So does that happen? Do you do that? We do, and I agree with you. It does take a while. I mean, I I think what we do is reasonable. I don't think it's the only way to do it. But what we do is we do a 360 at a year, one year in, oh. um, and then we do it again uh, in advance of the decision that the dean makes about whether to reappoint the chair at at the end of their first uh, five year and then each successive five year term. So the one year 360 um, we do as a as a formative thing uh so i review it mostly to to sort of edit out and and redact any content that might betray who wrote it who did you know who responded right. uh and obviously if i ever saw something in there that was truly required urgent action you know obviously we would act accordingly although that's not happened yet um but after redacting it i i send it directly to the chair who's obviously a relatively new chair at that point about a year in and i tell them you know i remind them that this is purely summative no one's looked at this except me and i only looked at it to redact anything that might betray who 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 responded uh and then but then we also say to them we you know although you're the only one who's going to see this uh you know we hope that this thing's here that will be helpful to you in your discussions with your chair mentor and with the dean and the vice deans and any uh, anybody else in medical center leadership as you continue to uh, to, to work in your role. The five-year 360, so anticipating their their potential reappointment, that is that is shared with the dean and with the vice deans as well as with the chair themselves, and then we want them to incorporate that into what they do as they do a departmental self-study. And then as they do sort of a evolving vision presentation to the dean and senior leadership, again, in anticipation of their, of their reappointment. Wow. That's a nice, that's a nice structure. And sometimes we learn things that we wouldn't know otherwise from these 360s. Sometimes we, we learn things that, uh, in fact, we were aware of and are working on. Um, but, uh, I think it is an opportunity for people to speak up. I will think, say one of the, comment about feedback, which not related to the 360, but one of the side benefits, which is really not so side uh, in my doing these chair recruitments, is that as part of that recruitment process, I get to know the department better. I get to know people in the department better and know what they're doing more. And I think that that then helps me do my academic affairs job because I have a better sense of what's going on and what the potential flashpoints are and what people are doing or what people are needing. And I hope that uh, that people in the department are more likely to come to me when they do have concerns or questions or problems or things we can help with here. Uh, yeah. Just you know, one hopes that familiarity you know does not breed what the what the aphorism says it does. You're exactly right. I, I like that secondary outcome of that process is gaining that trust and building relationships with members of the faculty that we're not just these removed dean people, but now we're real people who. Um, are in their face, it increased visibility, interaction. So I, I like that. Um, sometimes we don't think about during these searches that the unanticipated benefits are growing and building new relationships and, and, and perhaps setting a firmer or a firm foundation for what you said, leadership matters. It, it matters at the top and it matters within the faculty. And so yes. with that point, I'm imagining, I guess I'm hoping, that your department chairs, once after this two-year leadership seminar and they're involved or engagement with national programs and all the onboarding they do, I'm hoping that they transfer that 
experience that process to their faculty members and then have a perhaps a newfound appreciation or a better appreciation for similar development models for their faculty. And so can you think of any examples off the top of your head where you've actually seen that fruit that, you know, that development over time or something that a department chair then turned around and did something similar for her or his faculty to promote the same kind of growth? Well, one of the things that we've been trying to pay more attention to is exactly what you're saying. And often one way to think about it is along the lines of succession planning, not that a chair can decide who her or his successor is going to be, because obviously that's the dean's decision and not theirs. But if they're growing the department well, there ought to be people in the department who are capable of becoming a department chair if they want to. Uh, That's that's the only outcome that matters, but it certainly is one marker of success in in developing people's careers. And so we have uh, recently, at our our dean's behest, we've asked our chairs to kind of give us a a list of whom they think might be able to be to serve in the the event of a proverbial hit by a bus kind of scenario, if something's needed urgently uh, or in a more planful way, and then to think about what those faculty members or others might need in their own career development and encourage them to send them to national programs, again, AMC or, or other programs at other institutions for leadership development. Uh, we also have an internal uh, leadership development program that's a two-year pr- project-driven uh, model where people, the faculty members have to apply to be in this program, their chair has to support it, and the idea is that they get to work on a leadership project to help them develop their skills while they're being mentored as part of this program. And it's also, it's a twofer or a threefer because the department and the institution get the benefits of whatever the project is, which is why we want the chair to sign off on it because that means the chair thinks this is something worth doing and it's the right person to do it. So, um, so that's an ex- and so we've had now several cohorts of people who've entered this, which means that we're, you know, now have a cadre of a number of people who've gone through this kind of leadership training with the support of their chair. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's really been a very helpful program. That's excellent. So, that, that model works for folks who are, now if we shift a little bit to faculty development, that, that model works for people who are interested and who are drinking the Kool-Aid and they, they buy it and they, they get um, ongoing career development and leadership mm-hmm. skills. What about the faculty members? I'm thinking of putting myself in the, in the shoes of your department chairs. What about those faculty members who perhaps don't have that motivation or don't have the um, the interest, or feel like they don't need that kind of development. I know you've, your research has uh, you know delved into these kinds of theories. What are your thoughts on as leaders in the departments, or all those of us across in North America who do this faculty development work? What can you talk with us about motivation and different theories about uh, faculty development? How we can inspire or encourage people to to get involved. Right. Well, of course, as you say, our our faculty have very varied goals uh, for their own career and what they enjoy doing and what they think they're good at, what they're actually good at and what they want to develop. Uh, And I think that uh, skilled chairs and and other leaders and faculty colleagues at all levels do their best to elicit that, you know, help the person figure out what that is and then figure out how that then 
meshes with what are goals of the department or the division or whatever area they work in. Uh, so I think that people have intuited this, you know, going back, I'm sure, centuries or even longer than that. Uh, I think that people in our schools that are successful, not just as chairs, but in, as colleagues, as mentors, as, and so on, have done this. And it turns out, uh, and I know that you're familiar with this too, that this all fits pretty well under the, the rubric of self-determination theory, which is uh, not something that I uh, developed the science uh, about, but I, I have had an interest in how it might apply to uh, to roles such as we have in faculty development and faculty affairs. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, obviously way oversimplifying a pretty complicated and important body of science, but in a nutshell, self-determination theory is a, is a theory of human motivation that postulates that to the degree that people's what's called autonomous motivation is engaged, they wind up being both happier and more productive. And it turns out that the happiness and product productivity go hand in hand with each other. And productivity doesn't just mean more throughput. It doesn't necessarily just mean seeing more patients or generating more grant dollars. It also means more creative thinking and you know better problem solving uh, in the in the broadest sense. So these are outcomes that we all want for ourselves and for our faculty colleagues. And uh, the ways in which we engage people's autonomous motivation is by fostering basically three uh, domains, you know, which are known as autonomy, competence, and uh, relatedness or connectedness. And so, um, just very briefly, autonomy doesn't necessarily mean doing it alone. It's not like I have to do this by myself necessarily. Autonomy means I do it because I want to do it, because I'm choosing to do it. And that sense of choice engages our, our intrinsic or autonomous motivation. Competence means that people like to do things that they think that they're good at. And so giving people the tools to help them be to, to master the things that they do and to feel competent. And competent sounds like an uninspiring word, but it means really a sense of mastery about something uh, engages this autonomous motivation. And then connectedness or relatedness means connectedness to other people, connectedness to common goals or common values or common principles that we're all working toward. And the more people, you know, feel like they are connected in some way to something that matters, uh, that engages their autonomous motivation. So I think that I've actually found it helpful, this, this framework uh, in my role in academic affairs and in helping develop leadership skills in colleagues, whatever their titles or lack of titles might be. But, you know, all faculty uh, serve as leaders in all sorts of ways with our colleagues in some ways. And I think that thinking about ways to promote uh, autonomous and intrinsic motivation has, is really a way to help engage people and ultimately help them be more successful at what they want to do. Wow, Jeff. That so it was kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but no, it's, a, it's that, a start. that was so amazing that your description of self-determination theory was so wonderful. It was perfect a little snippet, autonomy, competence, relatedness or connectedness. That was a beautiful summary, and I, I totally agree with you. And, I, and it just dovetails so nicely with what Kevin Grigsby was talking about and what many of us talked about in Chicago that I think mm -hmm. the concern for a lot of us is that last, that third point, connectedness or relatedness. That yes. yes, our faculty have choices. Well, um, they do some things because they want to do them, but then they might push back and say, I actually don't have much choice. I'm, I have to be in the clinic and I have to be chasing grants and writing grant applications. Uh, competence, certainly they're good at it. Certainly they're, they're masterful at their, at their craft and at their skills and gifts. But that relatedness and connectedness to others, I think, I think 
we've lost a lot of that con- connectivity, despite media and technology that I'm not sure we are connecting or sharing common goals or principles because they're our faculty are so pushed against the wall and up again, up in the corner with um, financial metrics of productivity that I think a yes. lot of we're losing that. And that's, I guess, what a lot of Tate Shanafelt's work in the joy of medicine and burnout would go there um, as well. That uh, if you're not, you know, engaged in at least 20% of your waking life and things that make you happy and, and, and um, speak to your soul and your heart that you kind of will more be more likely to burn out. So what are your thoughts on connectedness and relatedness and how that gets to things like professionalism and civility and, um, and issues like that with our, that our faculty struggle with? Well, the, the connectedness is, as you say, is a whole set of challenges that's only become more so, uh, as our, schools and medical centers have evolved over the years so that people are working in more and more uh, locations across wider geographic areas. Some places obviously have explicit separate geographic campuses and others have uh, you know regional sites of various sorts where people might be half an hour or two hours away or more uh, and yet be part of the quote-unquote same department. Um, and I agree with you that, you know, in theory, technology can help promote some level of connectedness, but in practice, it doesn't seem to do that as much as we would like. Um, I also think that the regulatory environments we all work in uh, and just the, the demands uh, on quantitative productivity like RVUs for clinicians or, or right. you know, grant rec- salary recovery for researchers and so on can feel like externally imposed, reg- I mean, in some ways most of them are, externally imposed regulatory demands. I mean, the many different things we all have to do to maintain our, you know, uh, board certification or hospital privileges or in mandatory in-services or e- even when they're trainings that we, you know, that are really important. I mean, New York State has just mandated, uh, as I know other places have, certain trainings for all employees of all organizations around uh, sexual harassment and discrimination, which are obviously rather important topics that we all value progress in extremely highly. And yet at the same time, it also feels to so many people like just one more set of demands on people's vanishing time. So all these post challenges to both connectedness and also to sense of to sense of choice. Um, I think you also asked about professionalism, and that, of course, is a whole set of topics in and of itself. Certainly, for some people, um, wellness or its you know its antithesis, uh, burnout, as it's often referred to, which is a useful construct, is underlies at least some instances of professionalism lapses. I don't think that's all of it for all people, but it's certainly a significant part of things that, uh, you know, people who are um, um, not well in one way or another, including suffering from various types of burnout, uh, are not likely to be at their best in all kinds of ways, including managing interpersonal relationships and professional behaviors. Yeah. What do you do there in Rochester um, for this professionalism and how do you um, mitigate some of those issues? Well, there are things we're doing uh, on the wellness side, as are a number of institutions, uh, learning from the, from published work from Tate Janefeld and so many colleagues about how it's, I mean, on the one hand, people need to pay attention to individual wellness, but on the other hand, at a systemic level, a lot of the problem are demands that are put on people that are structural. 
uh, and that, you know, to, to exaggerate it a little bit, we can't fix people's wellness simply by giving them all yoga mats, however beneficial yoga might be to some people, but that we really need to look at the demands we're putting on folks and to the degree that we can remove um, or reduce barriers and reduce uh, the tasks that are not necessarily essential to be done by the physician or by the scientist or whoever the faculty member is, um, uh, you know, to allow them to really do the things that they most love doing and are actually best trained to do, that that helps promote wellness. In terms of dealing with concerns that are brought forward about professionalism, so we have long had multiple routes by which faculty uh, concerns about faculty behaviors are brought forward, and if they're significant enough, eventually they would get to to me in my academic affairs role and or to the chief medical officer if it's a, if it's in a clinical setting or other relevant leaders. What we realized, though, is that uh, I mean it's a good thing that there are many people involved in these kinds of things and many sources of support and. Uh, people who really have worked hard, I think, to, to do the right thing when these things arise, supporting the faculty member and yet at the same time making it clear what the expectations need to be. But it also winds up leading to some unwanted variability in what happens, you know, if you get a slightly different answer because it's a different chair or they go to a different person in the dean's office and get a slightly different answer. And all of that also happens in behind closed doors. And so it's not been very publicly visible to the community. And although individual situations obviously must remain confidential, we thought that we could increase the visibility and the transparency of what we do and the consistency um, by creating something we've called the FPC, the Faculty Professionalism Council. So this is a body that consists of mostly faculty members, but also some staff and trainee uh, leaders um, or representatives uh, on this body. And they wind up advising me and ultimately advising the dean and advising department chairs when concerns are brought forward, as well as looking for ways to celebrate, you know, the many, many positive examples of professionalism because, you know, most of our faculty under often very difficult conditions behave admirably most or all the time. And we want to support and encourage that. Oh, no, so the that, yeah, around for the past year. That's fascinating. So it's both. It's not, it's, um, it's the bad behavior and the good behavior. So the Faculty Professionalism Council, when that word, that, that phrase is bandied about, it's not a groan and a, oh, no, um, people behaving badly. <laughs> it's, it's also the good thing. That, that's an interesting twist. Yeah, so that's something we've thought about a lot that we, you know, we don't want people when they hear the term FPC to think of it as just a disciplinary board or to use one of the more dramatic expressions I've heard people use it. It's not just a firing squad. Um, and of course, that's, we don't view ourselves as the firing squad at all, but that's, you, you, one worries it might have that kind of connotations. So, you know, for example, our hospital system has for a while had these things called strong stars because it's Strong Memorial Hospital is the flagship hospital of the medical center, um, which is wonderful ways to, any but it can kind of report somebody, quote unquote, for having done something nice or something positive, which is great uh, for those who work in clinical areas, but it hasn't been you know, available or at least hasn't been perceived as being applicable to all the many other areas in which our faculty work. So now we've rebranded them and are going to be changing the described behaviors to be much more inclusive of all the things our faculty do. We've rebranded them as what we call iCare STARS, iCare being an acronym, which I know some other places use the same acronym, which is our way of crystallizing some of our professional values, uh -huh. not just for faculty, but for the whole medical center. Well, that really gets to the whole relatedness, connectedness. I love how you've kind of, you know, with your background, I'm sure this is, this is why this makes sense that you, you've, you know, helped 
create this, this self-determination theory of you're getting to that whole connecting with each other and building community and, and rallying people together around the common goals of I care and the strong stars. So I, I think that's, that's a brilliant idea. Well, thanks. I mean, I sort of can't take credit either for self-determination theory or for actually for the eye care initiative. Oh, sure. But I, but I, but I, but I, because there's a, a lot of wonderful people on both sides of that 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 have done incredible work. Um, but I think you're right that we collectively are trying our best to kind of connect those dots where it makes sense to try to help support what we, you know, the things we all care about. Wow. Well, this. This has been a great example, and what a great primer again on motivation and self-determination theory. And I, I, what I love about this conversation was, to me, it's a good example of how all of our years of learning theory and science and a practice and educational constructs and rubrics can translate into other arenas, other fields and areas and that isn't that what you know um smart scientists and people do when they can recognize patterns over here and apply them over there and so mm-hmm. i i love how you uh, have been able to weave in all your background into um faculty affairs and development and just it, to me it's a really nice um a nice way of tying up uh, a lifetime of work and using all these different elements and bringing all these different um, concepts together for uh, something that these things weren't created to do. So that to me is, that's evolution and that's, that's being innovative. I think that's great. The kind of stuff we do in this field is just so amazing. Well, I, I really appreciate that, both what you're saying about me, but also what you're saying about all of us and what we do in these roles. I, you know, I've often thought that, you know, I, for myself, but I think it's true for, for pretty much all of us, too. What I do day to day in my academic affairs role actually doesn't look on the surface like any, is anything to do with what I used to do before I joined the dean's office. But I hope it's informed by and that I'm able to do it better because of having had the experiences uh, over the years as a faculty member. That's it. That is exactly it. And that is the unique thing that we bring to our faculty, something that human resources, our our wonderful human resource colleagues who do great Mm -hmm. work and our organization development colleagues, uh, wonderful, very important work. And what we bring is something very unique because we've been in those shoes. We've we've lived the academic life. We've seen patients. We've done the research. We've done the education. and, And that gives us a different kind of a credibility uh, sense of, I know you, I see you, you know, I, I mm-hmm. am you. And that I really think um, is we need to maintain that connection. So talk about I couldn't do what I do, and I think that's true for all of us, without staff colleagues, both in the academic affairs office here, as well as in HR and quite a lot of other offices as well. Uh, and yet I don't think that, you know, we as faculty leaders are superfluous uh, in, in this. Well, this has been a great talk, Jeff. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we close today's session? Well, just how wonderful it is to be part of this because I have followed and enjoyed so much of what you've been doing with this podcast. And it's a, it's an incredible service to our faculty affairs, faculty development communities. And we really are a community. And if, you know, so many people in, in our uh, in our group refer to us as a family. And I think yes. that we, we are and we should be for each other talking about connectedness. And so I want to thank you for, for leading this and, and making this happen with the spirit of openness and support uh, and innovation that you brought to it. That's right. We are a great family. This is, 
It's great to see our family grow every year at the Professional Development Conference and all the great support from our AAMC staff who make it happen. And we um, we got to keep having each other's backs and growing the conversation. Yes. And, and thanks for your time, Jeff. It's folks like you who make this happen and reaching out and inspiring and encouraging each other. So with that, I think we will end today. We've been listening to and learning a lot from Dr. Jeffrey Linus. Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at the University of Rochester Medical Center School of Medicine and Dentistry. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.